and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. By any definition, Colonel Horn has enjoyed, and as far as I can tell is still enjoying, a big career. His service began in 1981 as a reservist while pursuing an undergraduate degree at the University of Waterloo. He joined the Reg Force with the Royal Canadian Regiment in 83, where he held various leadership positions and later served with the storied Canadian Airborne Regiment. Between 2007 and 2009, he was the Deputy Commander, Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. And by 2013, until his release from the CAF, he was the Director of the CANSOFCOM Professional Development Centre. Along the way, he earned a Master's Degree, a PhD, and was made an Officer of the Order of Military Merit. Horn has authored, edited, or otherwise been involved in the publication of 50 or so books and more than 100 chapters or articles on military history, especially soft history. Colonel Horn and I connected this past December to talk a little bit about his career, but mostly to unpack the history and heritage of Canadian special operations. There is a rich and I think largely untold story here that in a typically Canadian way goes unspoken. Horn's knowledge is deep and he's passionate about the subject matter. He's professorial to be sure, but it's informed by his role, or at least front row seat, to much of what he writes about. It's cold and rainy here in Vancouver. This is episode 15 with Colonel Horn. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. How'd you end up in the Army? You know, for me, I've always been military orientated as a young kid. And I know everybody plays with toy soldiers yeah. and plays, you know, army and all this. I just used to eat that stuff up. And that's all I ever thought of, uh, you know, and growing up during the Vietnam War era, you know, seeing the news clips and all that. It just sort of really in my mind, it's like I want to be in the military. I want to be in the infantry and, you know, when I went to the recruiting station, the recruiter actually tried to sell me on the Air Force to, you know, become a pilot or so. And it was like, no, I want to join the infantry. And he couldn't believe it. It was like, why do you want to be in the infantry, you know, of all things? But, yeah. no, it's something I've always wanted to do was, uh, you know, sort of an ambition from a very young age. Do your folks serve? No, they didn't. My uncle, I had an uncle in the German military. And, of course, my grandparents fought in the war uh, on the other side, though. Okay. But uh, anyways, uh, I know the German heritage. Uh, you know, so it wasn't really a family thing. It was more just, I don't know, something ingrained inside of me. I have the the benefit, of course, of looking at your CV. You went to university before enlisting? Yes, that, that's something I kick myself in the ass in the, for all the time. Because when I, you know, I was married right after high school to my high school sweetheart, we're still married today, uh, you know, and uh, it was one of those things I wanted to go to university because I wanted to be an officer uh, and, you know, I thought about going to, you know, Royal Military College, but I thought, no, I want to leave my options open mm. just in case, right. you know, I ended up joining the militia, you know, halfway through university. And then, you know, when I graduated, I, I went right into the military or so. And then all of a sudden I realized I could have had four years of pensionable service. I could have been paid already for four years of university. I wouldn't have had a student loan. Right. So it was a really bad decision to what I did. But in any case, uh, it all worked out in the end. You're probably a guy who would know the answer to this. When did what we now know the reserves stop being called the militia? Or, or is there a meaningful distinction between the two? 
well, the militia is the army part of the reserve, so it's still called the militia. Uh, you know, but when we talk about reserves, you're talking about all the part-time soldiers and all the different services and that, as opposed to the militia, if you wanted to be really specific, which if you go, yeah, I joined the militia, people know you've joined the army element of the reserves. So you transition from militia to reg force in sort of the mid, mid eighties. That's correct. I joined the regular force. Of, I joined the reserves in 1981, joined the regular force in 1983. And this is with the RCR? Yes, I joined, yeah, RCR was my regimental affiliation when I joined the uh, regular force. I was part of the Highland Fusiliers of Canada as a reservist. Again, benefit of seeing your your, your CV, 80s into the 90s, you're sort of traveling with a bunch of different outfits between Bosnia and, and Cyprus and Rwanda and pretty fulsome career. Yeah, absolutely. Started with the RCR and you also do extra regimental duties or so, uh, you know, went to Cyprus with uh, the RCR, uh, went to Bosnia with the RCR as a company commander, Bravo company, but I was attached to two RCR when they went over. I was part of the Canadian Airborne Regiment and, and you know, went to Rwanda briefly. Uh, and, you know, then as uh, Camp Sofcom, uh, you know, I, I uh, did some time in Afghanistan. I want to zero a bit in on uh, your time with the Airborne. Because I, I expect that probably influenced the later parts of your career, uh, the Airborne Regiment being Canada's sort of Cold War commandos in the early 90s. Is, is that a fair way to describe yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. For when we talk about special operations, it was the, you know, during that period. We, we didn't understand soft like we do today. It wasn't like that CT, hostage rescue type force, all that. You know, special operations were still seen in the realm of of uh, you know conventional forces could or you know advanced conventional forces could do it or so and for the Canadian Army, uh, the Canadian Airborne Regiment was the regiment that was responsible for special operations. We were on 48 hours notice to move, rucksacks always packed, you know, ready to go, uh, you know, on a moment's notice, so to speak. So we were the force at that time. I had a guest uh, on my show a couple episodes back who who, who served with the Airborne and and he spoke, you know very highly of, of the unit and the skill set. Um, but, you know, as a conventional force, I think, but with that sort of what we now think of as soft leaning, um, I know from just history and reading some of your books, the Airborne, you know, sort of ended, unfortunately, in, in um, not super pleasant circumstances. But with the benefit of hindsight, was that a high-functioning unit at the time, you know, with a modern lens? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it absolutely was. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the Canadian Airborne Regiment represented the elite of the Canadian Army, I would argue, uh, not just because they were high readiness, but, you know, you had highly motivated individuals. I always draw the, the line when I was in one RCR as a CEO and even as an OC, uh, officer commanding Bravo Company, uh, you know, and then uh, CEO later on. You had, you know, you could divide the regiment into thirds, you know, so you had a third, you know, a, a top layer. Those guys always looking for more challenge, wanting to move on to the next thing. You know, you could really count on them to, to be motivated and, and hard chargers. Then you had a really hot middle core, uh, you know, individuals who did a great job. They were there, they would do their job, but they, you know, They've been there a long time. I'm talking about your senior NCOs who, you know, 14, 15, 16 years in the right. battalion. They're tired. You know, I still remember uh, as a young lieutenant going, we're going to Norway. It's recce. We're going to go to Norway. I was so excited, you know, and I'm, oh, we're going to 
Norway, Norway, Warren, you know, this is going to be great. And he didn't seem too enthusiastic. And so I said, Warren, what's, what's the deal here? I mean, we're going to Norway. And, you know, he goes, yes, sir. Yeah. The first 12 times I went to Norway, I was really excited to. <laughs> right. and, and the penny drop. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. there for two, three years. This was all exciting new stuff for me. These guys had been around doing the same stuff, hard charging, hard exercises. You know, they were tired. You know, and when I hit 40, everything in my body started breaking. And I then all of a sudden I realized these senior NCOs who were, you know, running around with a hard charging lieutenant like me, you know, young in my late 20s or so. And they were, you know, in their late 30s, 40s, you know, and they had to keep up. And it's like, yeah, that's it's hard. So anyways, that's the middle. And then you had your bottom tier who were like, you know, oh, geez, I can't go on PT. Oh, I can't go on the exercise. My knee hurts. My back hurts. But when you were in the Airborne Regiment, almost everybody was hard charging. I mean, you know, they, they I used to love PT, but physical training because they wanted you to push them as hard as the, you, you know, you could, because that's what they were looking for, because that's why they were in the Airborne Regiment. And so you had a whole different class of individuals, same with special operation forces. You have individuals who are self-selected, who, who, you know, have now volunteered to join the military, now volunteered to join, you know, another layer, a higher strata of military sort of performance. And so you have these hard charging guys and it's just so motivating to be with them. And that's why the, the, you know, airborne regiment was such a strong unit and so capable. Now, I will say, you know, there were times, and people will admit this, uh, where we went through evolutions, where not all the regiments, the parent regiments, you know, the PPCLI, the RCR, you know, the Van Du, sent their best individuals, you know, and so what you found, especially towards the end there, once they moved from Edmonton to uh, to Padawala, the Patricias out west, kind of gave up on the Airborne Regiment because it was like, no, this isn't what we signed up for. Right. And so they started dumping. And it wasn't just them. I mean, the other regiments started dumping too. That had a lot to do with COs. If COs had to send, let's say, you know, 10 guys to the Airborne Regiment, if you had a CO who served in the Airborne Regiment, they'd send their best guys. If you had a, a CO who never served and didn't like the Airborne Regiment, they send their garbage. And so, you know, there were issues with, with discipline at times, uh, you know, and it really came to a, to a head right before the Somalia, uh, Somalia deployment in 1992-1993. Uh, you know, we saw what happened to Somalia because of that. But, you know, I blame the entire army chain of command because for the longest time, you know, there was individuals who were saying, look at, you know, we're not getting the quality soldiers we should get. The regiments aren't, you know, sending all their best soldiers or whatever. And no one did anything about it, you know. And when there were disciplinary infractions or whatever, you know, some of the seniors go, oh, that's the airborne. They're a little wild. They're just, mm -hmm. you know, we got to let them be or whatever. And they didn't put their foot down until all of a sudden it became a, a political embarrassment for the government. And now all of a sudden it's all those individuals who, oh no, just let it go, let it go. All of a sudden ran for the hills and didn't say anything. It was like, you know, didn't stick up for the regiment. In fact, some of them even said, yo, yes, there's always been a problem with the regiment. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's like, come on, give me a break. You were the guys who were in charge. You could have did something you didn't. Now you're trying to, you know, cover your own butt. But, you know, but but anyways, at the end of the day, when I, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to fin finalize a uh, updated uh, history of the regiment right now, when you look at the end of the day, they really were, uh, you know, I would argue for the time in elite, they, they were, you know, the premier combat soldiers in the Canadian military. It's something you, you mentioned um, about uh, soldiers being sent from their regiments, you know, up or over to the airborne. 
I guess maybe to distinguish um, uh, soft today, there wasn't a formal selection process. Is is that right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm hearing from you that maybe Airborne in its prime, the best and the brightest volunteered or was selected by the COs, but towards the demise, maybe some COs were sending less than prime candidates? Yeah, so when you look at when the regiment started in 1968, in order to get to the regiment, you know, as an officer, you had to basically be a captain. You have, you've already done your platoon commanding, so you've you've understood how that works. You you know you understand the military, the, the basic military. You've done your individual training. You've done your basic leadership, and so as a captain, you're going to the Airborne Regiment as a platoon commander, and so you're so much more advanced and mature, and you know capable. Uh, for the troops at that time, you had to be a corporal, which at that time meant four years. A very few people would get promoted to corporal before a four-year period. So again, you're looking at more mature soldiers, the ones who have done their basic training. They understand how to work in a battalion setting. And so now you could, you know, when they went to the Airborne Regiment, you could focus on a much higher level of training, uh, you know, and you, they were more reliable or so. By the early 80s, mid-80s, they were running into problems. You couldn't find enough people who wanted to serve anymore, and some regiments didn't want to send their people anymore. Uh, you know, as I said, the Patricias didn't believe that this was a regiment they signed up for or whatever. And so they started to really, anyone who'd volunteer, oh, I'm sorry, back in the early days, you also had to do the airborne indoctrination course. So you had to have time in and do the airborne indoctrination course, which was two weeks, a real bag drive to see if you could handle it or so. And so a lot of people fell out there. So it wasn't selection, but it was performance. But at the end of the day, experience and performance would determine if you could get in. By the mid 80s, they were so running into problems with people. They started taking, you know, the individuals, officers who weren't, you know, as, as much uh, uh, long in the tooth as, uh, you know, experienced anymore. And the biggest thing was the soldiers. So they take soldier who had just joined, did his basic training at Cornwallis, did his basic infantry training, uh, wherever he did it, in one of the battle schools at a regiment. And then they, if he wanted to, he could he could volunteer and go to the airborne regiment. So you're getting a lot of really young soldiers who haven't understood, you know, life in a battalion yet. They weren't mature, and all of a sudden you're sticking this maroon beret mm. on their head with you know, the mythology that right, goes with right. the, the airborne brotherhood, and it just cr started to create a lot of problems because you had a lot of immature soldiers who, you know, were living the the were living, you know, the the mythology, but didn't have anything to back it up. And so that caused a lot of problems for the regiment. Towards the mid-90s, you start exploring more um, academic pursuits within the armed forces. Yeah, that's correct. I, I started uh, working on my master's on, on the side, uh, you know, to, because I've always been one for education. I believe, you know, you can never be educated enough, especially for soldiers. You know, this, this idea of knuckle draggers who, you know, you don't need an education. That, that's in today's complex environment or so, you know, I believe that even soldiers need as much education as possible. So anyways, I, I did my master's and then because of the Somali, it's kind of funny because because of the Somalia affair, uh, you know, one of the, the, the five sort of wise men, uh, 
the academics, you know, said the problem with the Canadian military, especially the officer corps, is there's not enough officers who are educated. They said only 50% of the officers have bachelor degrees and only 5% have master's degrees. And you need to have, you know, if you're a senior officer, you should have a master's degree or so. And so because of that, they, they sort of flipped it. Before that, if you had a master's degree as an infantry officer, you were seen as a traitor. Mm. Oh, you're getting your CV ready to get out, to, you right. know, to get a right. civilian job or so. And it would crush your career. But all of a sudden, overnight, we did a 180 where it's like, okay, if you didn't have a master's degree, you're not getting promoted anymore. And so they went to the top of the merit list at each rank level, you know, major, lieutenant colonel, colonel. And so they wanted to send those individuals off to uh, get a master's degree. And so I was one of those people that they, 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 they was at the top of the list of my rank level. And so they said, okay, we're going to send you for your master's. And I said, well, that's great. I just finished my master's on my own. So I'll go for my PhD since you give me two years. I had to fight with the army to let me go because they said, we don't need infantry officers with a PhD. And I had to fight with RMC because they said, we don't want infantry officers here at the, the college or so. And I, I finally won and got in or so and did my, my two years there to get my PhD. But it was really crazy. Some of the other individuals with, you know, who were in the same cohort with me who were now going for their master's, they were upset. It's like, oh, there goes my career. They're sending me for a master's. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to yeah. get promoted anymore right. because we were an anti-intellectual organization, quite frankly. This is late 90s, early 2000s, right? This time period? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's changed? Not to sidebar too much, but 20 years later? You know, yes and no. I mean, there's quite a few officers now who have PhDs. And they're, you know, at RMC and everywhere else. So the idea of sending an officer for a PhD, we're we're beyond that. Everyone's getting masters now because they need it for promotion. So the only problem I see is it's more of the check in the box now because you know the Canadian Forces College they have this, this MDS, the uh, military. Uh, Oh, I forget what the MBS stands for, but it's basically you're going to staff college there, you write a paper on the side, and you're going to get a master's degree out of it. And it's just a check in the box because, I mean, it's it no longer has that, that the same as when the war studies program at RMC, which most of us had to go through before to get our master's through the military side or so. Uh, you know, so yes, there's there's more of an understanding that education is important, but I'm still not convinced it's it's really set because you know we've cut back on on funding for people to get their degrees on their own. Uh, you know, they, we shut down the Canadian Forces Leadership Institute because we said, oh, it's no longer required anymore. Mm. You know, so and that we still have problems trying to push educational programs, uh, you know, on the mainstream because. I get it. They're busy and they have lots of other stuff to do, but they just haven't realized the importance of education to, you know, the military uh, side of operations. Burned, I don't, I don't want to give uh, what I, what I see is a pretty big career short shrift, but I, I want to fast forward to 2007 uh, when you find yourself deputy commander of Canadian special operations forces command feels like a pretty big appointment from a civilian point of view. This is towards the tail end of Canada's involvement in Afghanistan. Is that right? Uh, not, not really. It's sort of the middle because we got out of Afghanistan in 2011. Okay. And we, so 2001, 2002, we have, you know, uh, commitment with, with Operation Enduring Freedom with the Americans. Uh, you know, then back then 2003, we get involved with ISAF on the conventional side. And then 2005, soft, the Americans asked for the soft task force to go back into theater. So we're back in theater between 2005 and 2011. So, so sort of 
in the middle there. So this is kind of where the fun begins from my point of view anyway. At a really high level, what is, what is SOF? I mean, you've written about it, dozens of books, dozens of articles. Um, I, I appreciate it's an international concept. It's both modern, historic. I want to unpack the concept, but um, I don't know. Where do you want to begin? What is special operations? Yeah, so, I mean, when we start realistically, you know, modern stuff starts World War II, you know, when Churchill realizes that in order to try to maintain some initiative, because, uh, you know, he says, why should we allow the Germans to pick and choose, you know, when they, they come to attack, you know, where when and where they attack? I said, we should make them be looking over their shoulders. And he goes, you know, I want leopards of the hunter class who will butcher and bolt along the coast of occupied Europe, leaving dead Germans behind. I want, you know, commandos. I want paratroops. And that. So, you know, he, he sort of starts this idea about, you know, we need to start up these organizations because soft has always sort of filled the gap. The, the mainstream conventional military doesn't, has never really liked soft. That changes after 9-11, but up until that point, I would argue they never really liked it. It was always sort of this, these, these rogue mavericks on the periphery of military capability, but where they were important was whenever there was a gap to fill, whenever there was a crisis that the conventional forces couldn't adjust to very quickly. In the beginning of the war, that was it. Because what you had was, you know, all of the allied equipment is burning and smoldering on the beaches of Dunkirk. They have nothing to really fight with except for the Royal Navy, the blockade, and strategic bombers. And so Churchill realizes we need to have something for the offensive spirit to keep the public morale up and to make the Germans have to tie down troops. And so this is where he comes up with special operation forces. And you get, you know, the commandos and you get the long range desert group, you get, you know, the special air service and you get, you know, a whole bunch of other of these, you know, and it's for the first two years. So when we're looking at soft in the early days, you're really talking about special men, special missions, you know, and special training type of stuff. That's how we sort of define soft for the longest period of time. Then in the 60s and 70s, you start getting the terrorism, the hijacking, the anarchists, the left wing, you know, extremists. Uh, you get the communist, you know, agitation, you know, during the Cold War and all that. And you start looking at, at you know, especially after Munich of 1972, where the Palestinians, uh, you know, captured some Israeli uh, athletes and then ended, it ended up killing all of them uh, during a botched German raid. People start to realize the German government was first, is we need special forces that are capable of dealing with counterterrorism and hostage rescue. And so you start to get this specialization. And this is where soft takes its modern, starts to turn to its modern sort of uh, persona of, of these type of, you know, your SAS, your tier one SAS, Delta and all that, who do counterterrorism, who do direct action, who do strategic runs, they do a whole bunch of stuff. And so when we start looking at, you know, the definition going from special men, special training, special missions, you go start going to specially selected individuals who can conduct kinetic and non-kinetic operations in hostile, denied, political sensitive areas, uh, you know, to achieve not just military, but diplomatic, economic, informational, uh, national objectives. You know, so these high risk sort of operations. And, and this is now where SOF is leading to. And when we look at the definition of SOF, I mean, there are quite a few. Uh, the Americans basically say, hey, you know, special, uh, special operation forces are those forces that conduct special operations. Right. And, you know, our definition, or at least in 2009, the doctrinal definition was what I just explained to you, is that specially educated, trained individuals who conduct all those things in different environments, blah, blah, for different reasons or so. 
you know, and then you get some European soft. Uh, I mean, you know, they they they're soft are, are you know Jaeger regiments, which we would con- consider you know advanced recce or so. Uh, the Israelis they consider any force that does non-conventional things they're not special forces or so you know so you get this wide range but i i go with you know uh, our definition which is basically the western nato definition of, of you know individuals who carry out special operations am i am i hearing correctly that that you attribute winston churchill as, as the originator of soft is that is that i mean that'd be well. very cool if that's true i haven't heard that before uh you know yes and no I, and i taking the real Canadian stance here, right on the fence in the middle yeah. or so. Okay. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say. He, whenever you look at soft, modern soft or so, it's always needed a champion. It's needed, right. you know, that, right. that Winston Churchill, that George Marshall. For Canadians, it was Rick Hillier. Mm. You know, someone who will push against the conventional thinking and say, no, we need this. You know, and why I hesitate, and Winston Churchill in World War II was that guy, because his generals didn't want to. They try to to friggin everything to put roadblocks up because they right. thought this was a waste of time waste of money you know normal troops given training could do the same as soft you know and it's that's not true at all but in any case he was the one who pushed for it and not just for you know he was the catalyst for commandos he was the catalyst for paratroopers he was the catalyst for the soe he was the you know catalyst for the first special service force uh, that became famous in canada and the u.s you know so he was a real big champion but why i sort of hesitate of you know giving him the mantle of yes he created special operation forces is because he took commandos from the Boer, the Boer War experience. He was a journalist, a war correspondent during the Boer War, captured by the Boers, escaped or so. And, you know, when the Boers went to their guerrilla warfare phase, you know, they actually called, you know, the, their organization was commandos. So it would be a group of individuals on horseback who would go around and, and create, you know, turmoil behind, you know, enemy lines and, and do, uh, you know, sabotage and all sort of attacks and all this sort of stuff. So you get, you know, there is the whole idea of commandos. You could say, hey, they're soft. You could go back even farther. The, the uh, you know, U.S. Special Forces and uh, the 75th Ranger Regiment, they go back and they say, oh, no, our legacy is Robert Rogers and Rogers Rangers during the French and Indian Wars. You know, they called that the first American way of war. And it was all about Rangers doing direct action ambushes, strategic reconnaissance and all that. And, this, you know, the part, point I always like to bring up is, well, hang on a second here. It's not the first American way of war. It's the first Canadian way of war because Roger, Robert Rogers was a direct response to the Canadian Raiders, you know, it was like four, anywhere from, you know, 12 to 50 individuals, a French-Canadian partisan mm-hmm. leader with some indigenous troops doing raids into the, you know, frontier area and all that. And so we trace back and we go, what's Canadian special operations legacy? We actually go back to that period as well. So, you know, there, there were what you could call special operations going on throughout history. But when we actually look at, you know, the organization of special operation forces in the modern context, yeah, I would say that goes back to World War II and it goes to Churchill as a major catalyst to, to starting those units up. Yeah, and, and from my, uh, uh, you know, limited reading on Churchill and, and the Second World War, I, I, I can relate to that concept, you know, the the British expeditionary forces retreated. All the hardware has been abandoned in Europe. Churchill, as we can all picture him, is pacing around furious that it's <laughs> 1940, 41, 
we're not bringing the war to you know the axis so to speak other than some bombers so why not send some covert frogmen to put mines on the bottom of ships or to blow up dams and bridges and that sort of thing and well, as you said that's not the fully modern concept of it i think it's very relatable to to modern listeners to why a soft capability would be um you know trained and and funded because you can't bring tanks over to europe right now not in 41 42 but you maybe can get 20 or 30 guys on a beach somewhere yeah absolutely but but i think that's that sort of also leads to the next phase which is uh i think you flagged this a bit of an animosity between conventional forces and special forces which is all right well maybe the second world war is over now or those tasks have been completed what are these guys doing with this sort of special status and maybe taking a bunch of our money and maybe taking a bunch of our the cream of our crop and if i'm a ceo of a of a conventional unit i don't appreciate that and uh, that's certainly a theme that you've explored in your writing is this kind of push and pull from the 40s maybe up until 911 of uh, soft sort of falling in and out of favor maybe it's in favor in the second world war then it's out of favor then it's appears in vietnam and then it's gone again yeah, I would argue it's within the military circles, it's never been in favor of, again, up until maybe 9-11. Well, it starts 1987 with the, the, the uh, standup of uh, USACOM, uh, you know, and then they start to prove themselves because they have more direct say in, of their resources and all that. But in any case, go back to your World War II example. Yeah, you know, as soon as the war is over, almost every country, including Canada, just basically shit cans their, their soft capability or so. Uh, you know, the SAS has turned into a territorial uh, capability. The Americans basically shut down most of their stuff, although they do stand up 10 Special Forces Group in 1953 because it's all these expats from Eastern Europe. So they're going, hey, if we go to war in World War III with, uh, you know, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, we can get these people, they understand the language, they understand the, the culture, they understand they have a network potentially, we can send them back into these occupied territories or whatever. So you get that. But other than that, it's basically shut down because as you identify, you know, a lot of the, the big generals, General Slim, Montgomery and that from World War II, they're all going, hey, you know, there's nothing special about SOF. You know, if you take any conventional forces, give them some training, they can do the same missions. Uh, you know, they saw it, as you said, a waste of, you know, you're taking the cream of our battalions. You know, your, your privates and corporals could be our sergeants or whatever. You know, this is a waste. They, you know, there's always been this mythology that SOF is much more expensive than conventional forces, which is absolutely ridiculous when you look at the, the, the you know, the, the cost. You know, okay, if you take man for man, Yes, you know, the cost of a special operator training, educating, getting them equipped is more than an individual private or corporal in a battalion or so. But then you look at what each one of those can do. You know, the, 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 the soft individual can be deployed in the, almost independently in small teams of, you know, anywhere from four to 12 to whatever, you know, and they're capable of doing so much more where you send a conventional group over and you're going to need, you know, officers and NCOs and, and, you know, a lot of more people, you know, you look at the equipment that conventional forces have, their tanks, the, you know, the, the warehousing, you know, the infrastructure. The infrastructure, thank you, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. You yeah. know, you look at the infrastructure, it costs so much more 
you know, General Leslie used to complain, oh, for the cost of CanSoftcom, I could have a fourth brigade. And it's like, oh, yeah, a fourth brigade that's doing can't train because you don't have money to train it now because you're paying so much for infrastructure and equipment. You know, you, you want to deploy them. Oh, I need 90 days, you know, the road to high readiness to get them ready. Whereas soft, you can send them out within 24 hours. You know, so, I mean, there's a, it's apples and oranges, but it's a mythology. Anyways, I go off on a tangent here. Yeah. But, you know, also, you know, the, 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 so, you know, they also argued higher casualties, you know, look at, oh, that's a hundred percent casualty rate on that last mission. Well, yeah, but it was, we're talking about four guys. If right. you send out four guys, yeah, of course, you, they all die hundred percent. So, I mean, again, it's statistics. You can play yeah. any way you want, you know, but then you also look at the, the, the biggest two things were, you know, the cult of the elite and the private army piece, because generals hate when they don't know what's going on. And, you know, they, 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 they want us, okay, what are you guys doing in my area? Can't tell you. You know, we're doing a mission. Or they don't even bother checking in with the headquarters. They later on find out soft is operating. That drives them nuts. You know, the, the long hair, the, the dress standards, the, you know, the what they call lack of discipline and military decorum. Uh, you know, all of that drives, you could just imagine, you know, the, the RSM who has been brought up in the military, you know, it's 40 years and, and he sees these individuals who just don't look like any of his other soldiers. It, it drives him nuts. Can we, can we unpack that burn? Just, just, I hate to interrupt, but. Sure. Yeah. Um, why, what, why do soft operators need or feel entitled or are permitted to have long hair and wear non-standard gear and maybe just have dress and deportment that is otherwise at abhorrent to the 40-year sergeant major. Where, where does that well, come from a, and why is it tolerated and where is it going? Well, there, there's a number of reasons for that. You know, it goes back to the whole idea of who you're actually, it goes back to, you know, the World War II, your, your, uh, Darby's, you know, your, your billiards, the, the individuals who serve, you know, your, uh, uh, who's the guy I'm thinking of here, Sterling, David Sterling and those individuals, they're a bit, they're mavericks and they don't believe in how the conventional force does things. It's so standardized, so rigorous, so slow, so doctrinal. And they feel that they're missing opportunities because of this standardization and this, this slow, rigid hierarchy command structure. And so these are individuals who want to go out and really stick it to the enemy by doing unconventional things. And so what they do is already when you look at their careers within, you know, uh, Sterling came from a commando or so. And, you know, he was called the sloth because, you know, he just people didn't see him as motivated. They didn't see him as capable and not having initiative or anything. But when he gets to the SAS and he creates the, you know, the L detachment in the desert and, you know, it's his idea. And he starts to foment this idea that guys, we're not going to worry about how the conventional army structures itself, how it looks. I don't care how you dress. You dress functionally so that you can operate for long periods of time in harsh environments, you know, and do what you have to do. That's all I care about. And you know what? We're not going to have all these disciplinary things about checking your, your boots, how shiny they are, and if your buttons are done up correctly or so. We're going to rely on self-discipline because if you aren't here with the intent of killing the enemy and getting the job done, you shouldn't be here and we'll kick you out. We'll return you to unit. So when you're here, I don't want to have to worry about looking after you. You look after yourself. And so this starts this culture of in, not really individualism, but this idea that individuals – 
are should be smart enough, mature enough to look after themselves. So they're not given a kit list like you are in a conventional military. Okay, guys, you're going on operations. Here's a kit list. So you have to have all this in your rucksack. Special operating forces are expected to, you know what you need, you know where you're going, or to, you know, now you, you look after yourself. And so this culture of, you know, we're not, we're not going to stress the conventional protocols and regimen because we're different. We have, we think differently, we operate differently. And so we're giving you guys that freedom or so. So that's part of it, that, that cultural, historical, cultural thing that brings up this, this feeling of, you know, uh, that we don't have to be the same as others. Then there's also the operational side. If you're all of a sudden sent into Afghanistan or Iraq or so, it's like, okay, you're, you know, you're going in, 40, 36 hours, 48 hours, grow your beard, you know, quickly so that you can, so, you know, you need to have, you know, individuals that are ready to go on short notice. Same with hair. You don't want, you know, when you already, you see it when you're at the airport or so, I don't know how many times I've seen this attack team, you know, you go, Oh, there's attack team. Cause they're all dressed the same. They all look the same, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're super fit you know they they got you know short hair so it's like oh there's a tag team or so and so if you want people especially for domestic counterterrorism, you're flying people on commercial airlines across the country or so you don't want them to stand out as like oh you know there's a military or there's a police guy or so you want them to fit in and how do you fit in well you have the longer hair you have the beard you have non not, you know, the, the, you know, dress that that doesn't look like uh, everybody else or so, you know, that you look like just a normal person or so. And so that's a second reason. And then, you know, there, there is a third reason is uh, yeah, people will yell at me for this one. But anyways, it's, you know, we always talk about humility and we talk about OPSEC or so. But one of the things I found with all soft organizations is they don't they want to make sure they don't look like everybody else exactly you know they yeah. don't want to be confused as oh yeah. he's just you know a, a base weenie here at headquarters so they want to make sure that i'm different you know right. it's not exceptionalism i'm different right. Right. and so you know and i don't know how many times i've seen you know soft guys soft guys are traveling with conventional guys if conventional are in civvies soft guys will be in uniform if uh, conventionals in uniform, soft guys will be in civvies, you know, because they want to stand out right. different right. uniforms all the time, right. different berets. I mean, you know, if you're really, really serious about OPSEC and the gray man principle or so, you want to look exactly like conventional forces, but no soft organization in the world does because they don't want to, you know, so that, that's my explanation for that. The anecdotes as, as relayed in, in autobiographies and, and pop culture of the, the high-performing infantry guy who's at a base somewhere in Afghanistan or Iraq early in his or in his career and he sees the cool guys at that other table and he nudges the guy beside him at the chow hall and says who are those guys and they say oh well that's JTF2 or that's SAS or those are the Navy SEALs and and how many books start off with that guy saying to himself well that's who I want to be and they get back from that deployment and they put in their papers and they start training. So there's, um, th there's definitely something to that otherness that sort of just oozes elite. Uh, but, but at the same time, I, again, I can see leadership in the conventional forces saying, well, hold on. If, if these high performers are saying that the standard issue gear and, and dress and department regulations undermine their ability to excel at their jobs, what does that say about our standards? And that's, that's got to be tough internally to balance if, as you say, these guys believe that 
the buttons and the boot polish don't don't mean a lick. You know, you, you talk about this in military elites, right? That article you read about how that, on the one hand, look, it, it's great for the people in those units. It's a little bit great to to draw in high performers, but simultaneously, it maybe it affects the morale of of everyone left behind. Well, that's one of the arguments that has always been made by conventional commanders that, you know, uh, when you have elite forces, they make everyone else seem second best, especially if an individual tries to go for selection and then doesn't make it and goes back to the unit. Yeah, it's a, you know, they say it's a morale killer. So, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, elite is elite for, for that reason. You know, it, it's, it's individuals who stand out, individuals who are able to meet a specific selection standards that are able to go beyond what the average person can do. And so, you know, when you say that elite have, you know, elites have these special, you know, privileges, let's call them that, right, you know, right. they, they don't, may not have to follow all the, 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 the decorum rules and everything else. And they have laxer discipline, although that it's always a scary one because there is that self-discipline. And, and, you know, if someone does shit the bed, you know, they come down hard on those individuals. So, so it's not as if there's no discipline. It's just a different type of discipline where you're, you're relying on, on the individual or so. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, so you can say, oh, everyone else, they look over the fence and they go, hey, why can't we do that or so? Well, you know, what they don't see is the cost of being on that other side of the fence is, you know, you have to keep yourself in a very top condition. You have to be able to deploy constantly on short notice. Uh, you know, you're always you're basically always on. I mean, you know, you, you can't let down the team at all. You know, you, you have to maintain high standards uh, of performance at all times. And so, you know, if you're not prepared to put in the time and the effort, and a lot of people aren't, I mean, they considered having to do PT in the morning, it used to kill me in the battalion, you know, I, I don't know how often I had to, you know, come on to people and NCOs because, oh, I can't do PT this morning, I got paperwork to do. It's like, no, no, you're going on yeah. PT because physical fitness is key. So, I mean, it's these things that they don't see. They just see that, oh, hey, why do they get those benefits? Well, there's reasons they get those benefits. And, you know, not talking about it, I mean, you know, the hair, the grooming standards. Now, well, I, I'm not sure where we're going with the conventional forces because you know, remember state ceremony, I saw some individual with purple hair going over his ears and he was in uniform. Right. He was a master yeah. corporal. Yeah. You know, so we're allowing beards now we're allowing longer hair we're allowing tattoos and piercings and and you know so uh, you know all of a sudden it's going to look like soft grooming standards are a lot better than the ones in freaking the conventional forces i'm just being facetious here but anyways no i know what you're saying and, and i think there's there's definitely an analogy to um a lot of professionals or entrepreneurs who you know maybe to the outside world you know i don't know i'm a lawyer i'm not in a suit today i don't punch in and punch out but I'm responsible to myself. And if I don't get my work done and, and get it done to a high standard and I'm not in the right dress at the right time, there are consequences to me, like people who own their own businesses and, and maybe their neighbors are jealous that they set their own hours. But at the end of the day, if they want to put food on the table, they have to work very hard. So maybe it's not a perfect analogy, but if you're someone in a conventional force who feels a little bit stuffed into a box because of standards on, you know, when they work and what they dress and how they do it, what they're missing to kind of to your point on the other side of the fence is, yeah, those guys may have a beard, but like, holy smokes, are they doing a bunch of other stuff that you don't do that you don't see when they're at, when they're at the chow hall? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not a bad analogy at all. Sort of uh, driving the conversation back to the Canadian example, 
we've both mentioned the SAS a, a little bit, which I always think of as a, as a, as a British force and, and to some extent Australian. But in reading your work, I didn't know that for a brief period of time there was a Canadian SAS. <laughs> yes, but uh, let's. Uh, I gotta pack that now because a lot of people run around going, and they actually attribute the SAS uh, badge of World War II to this SAS company. So to talk about the Canadian SAS Special Air Service Company of 1948 to 1949, this was a product of after the war. The, basically, the Canadian, Canadian government told the military, you have two years, you know, we'll call it the interim force, to decide uh, to figure out what the military is going to look like, and we'll help you out here. It's going to be very small. It's going to, you know, be a cadre to train up the militia, the reserves for World War III, much like with the World War II model. This is before NATO stands up and everything else. At this time, they had also signed a basic security plan agreement with the Americans that said by 1940, April of 1949, they would need to have this airborne force capable of meeting Soviet incursions into the Arctic and, and you know, to repel them or so. So when the war is over, a guy called Major Flint gathers up as many of the one Cam para first special service force and soe canadians that are still in uniform and he brings them into the joint air school the army section of that and they go hey we should develop to make sure we don't lose all of our commando like training from world war ii you know we should start up this special air service uh, company to, you know, to conduct things. And so they sell it to the government as, hey, look, if we set up this Canadian Special Air Service Company, what we can do is we can do help the Air Force with search and rescue. We could send a force anywhere in Canada within 15 hours to save lives and property. So, I mean, the government commanders are going, hey, this is a great thing, you know, fighting forest fires and all sorts of stuff. They don't know the military history. They don't realize Special Air Service was a commando raiding force, you know, very kinetic, very aggressive. Any case, so they go, yeah, absolutely, we want one of these. And so when Flint gets the approval, he goes, okay, great. We'll get right back to you with the terms of reference. And they're like, whoa, whoa, I thought you gave us a terms of reference. And they flip it on its ass and mm -hmm. they go, right, job number one is Airborne Demonstration Company. Job two is to perpetuate the skills of the Special Air Service of World War II, which is a commando force. They bring a guy called Guy d'Artois. He started in one Campara, jumped over to First Special Service Force, then jumped over to the SOE. He comes in to take over the company, and he treats it as a commando force. That's all they do. But now 1949 comes around. The Canadian government goes, oh, shit. We're supposed to have this airborne force ready to go because we don't want the Americans back in our northern regions. So in order to placate the Americans, we have to have this airborne force. Not that they believed there was a threat to the north at all, but it was just they had to, they knew they had to do something to keep the Americans at bay. And so what they do is they took the Canadian Special Air Service Company and they took the RCR platoon, went to the RCR battalion to train them up in airborne warfare, the Van Dues to the Van Du battalion and the Patricias to the Patricia battalion. And so it disappears. Within a year, it's totally gone because it's used as a training cadre right. to bring up the Canadian Army to the airborne uh, force. And and the the sort of uh, slow disbanding of the SAS. Th this is the the runway for the Canadian Airborne that would come ten or fifteen years later. Well, well you know, it's they they call it the 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 gap. 
because from that, you know, you went to the Mobile Strike Force, then you went to the Defence of Canada Force, and then in 1968, you start the Canadian Airborne Regiment. So it's, you know, Airborne Forces have never been an easy sell. It's always needed a champion. And for the Canadian Airborne Regiment, it was uh, Guy Victor Allard, who actually thought that, you know, he realized that the Army needed something where individuals who were in battalions, who were getting bored with battalion, like needed this next level. And that's the same argument now, I would argue, for, you know, the CAMSOFCOM, for individuals who are serving in the battalions in the Army and they, they you know, okay, I've done this now, I need, an, I need something more to challenge me, that's the next step. And unfortunately, you know, when we had the Airborne Regiment, much like the Americans, they have the Rangers and then they have, you know, Delta and SEALs and all that. It, it gives people a, a stepping stone. So most people go from the Army to the Rangers and then from the Rangers, they try out for Delta. And when we had the Airborne Regiment for, you know, that same time as the uh, JTF-2 for three year period, because JTF-2 started in 1993, uh, so two year period, you know, Canadian Airborne Regiments ended in 1995, March 1995. So for that short period, you had individuals from the Airborne Regiment who then took that next step, you know, but now, you know, you have individuals in the battalions who have to make that big jump to CAMSOFCOM. I mean, they can go to CSOR first and then from CSOR, you know, jump up to JTF2 or so. But, you know, you need those stepping stones to help individuals get up there because it's, you know, the, the selection standards are difficult and, you know, it requires an individual to bring a lot to the game. I, I want to ask you about um, JTF2 and CSOR, but I just want to go back a little bit in time before we go forward. You mentioned the uh, First Special Services Force, which is a World War II Joint Commander Force with the Americans. Is that right? That is correct. And and that unit, I think I, I think I've seen this at the War Museum in in Ottawa. This is the Red Arrowhead logo, right? That's become a little bit ubiquitous with kind of Canadian American Special Forces. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, the Kansas everybody wears it on their uniform. You know, just that red uh, spearhead. So today, is it as it's more of a uniquely Canadian logo, or do the Americans still identify with that emblem? Uh, special Forces do, uh, U.S. Special Forces do, and they, they still carry on Menton Day. So uh, the first Special Service Force was disbanded on 5 December 1944 uh, at a place, uh, Vilcar, whatever, is close to Menton. And so since then, they've maintained Menton Days every year where, uh, you know, the, the legacy units from both the American side and the Canadian side, for, for our side now, it's CSOR, Canadian Special Operations Regiment, which is also... Uh, perpetuates the battle honors of the first special service force. So they get together every year on the anniversary to uh, celebrate Menton days, you know, so it's still, the tradition is still sort of carried on today. That's very cool. Um, Okay. So JTF2, this is the early nineties, 93, I think you mentioned. And this tier one sort of special operation unit is stood up in Canada. But at, but at that time, not to a lot of publicity outside of military circles. Am I am I right in saying that? I, mean, I was a very young person in 1993. Yeah, so it started. They start in 1992 to do the transition. They actually take over from the Special Emergency Response Team, the RCMP, sir, uh, on one April 1993 or so. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because if you remember, this is the same time as the Somalia scandal. Uh, you know, with with the military and the government is, and so they're very reticent, very suspicious of anything that that smells like an elite or so. 
Uh, they do realize, Bob Fowler realizes that, you know, it's important for, you know, the military to take on this new tasking. Uh, you know, so they take it on, but it's basically, and the, the problem was a lot of the plank holders, the initial group, a lot of them, the majority, I would argue, are all either former Airborne Regiment guys or individuals who now jump ship from the Airborne Regiment to get into JTF2. And so from the view of the seniors, it's like, ah, are we just creating another problem? Are we creating another Canadian Airborne Regiment? And so they really, really put the hammer down. We don't want to hear you. We don't want to see you. Don't use any words like special forces or special operation forces or elite or anything like that. You know, we, you know, we don't want to hear from you unless we ask you to say something. And so, yeah, so there's this real dampening effect on the startup of JTF2 or so. And at the beginning, it's not necessarily a tier one right now because the time period between being told they're taking over from the RCMP to setting everything up and training up the first group uh, is very, very short. And so they fall in on the RCMP culture. They fall in on the RCMP training as such. And so at the beginning, it's just a counterterrorist hostage rescue force. But the first CO realizes, you know, that he has to, A, has to expand the force and they, they can't just be doing CT and and whatever. So he starts to try to expand capabilities. They start doing close personal protection. They start doing, you know, contingency training operations, uh, you know, so that they, they're trying to expand and they do want to become tier one. And after, uh, you know, uh, op the, the first operation in Afghanistan, 2001 to 2002 Operation Centurion, where they're part of Enduring Freedom, when that mission is over, that's where they finally really, you know, say, okay, we're a war fighting tier one soft organization. Yes, we still do CT and hostage rescue, but we do so much more than that. That's when they really become, so I would say 2002, 2003 is, is where they really, you know, cut their teeth as a tier one uh uh, soft force and where they're recognized by allies, international allies, because right. this is the first time they actually do operations with Americans, Australians, Europeans, soft and that. This is the first time people actually see how capable they are because when they first go into theater, the Americans, you know, are so busy doing their own stuff. It's like, okay, all you other foreign soft, you know, just stand by. We, we don't have time to deal with you. And so our guys are always pushing to get on operations. You know, and so at one point they say, okay, you guys can take over the gate and do perimeter security. And, and it's basically, you know, they use the red card, the national red card and say, no, you know, if you're not going to use this as soft, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get sent home or so. And so, of course, it goes to the chain of commands and all this. Next thing they get sent on a mission, they do really, really well. And after that, it's like, okay, yeah, we'll use Canadians. And, you know, at the end of the year, so they go from the Americans going, you know, who are you guys? Are you really capable? the end of the year, you know, the JTF2 task force becomes the the theater direct action standby force. And they have helicopters, aviation from the 160th Special Operations Air Squadron, you know, uh, cut to them as well as a cordon force, either from the 82nd Airborne or the 75th Ranger Regiment. So, you know, it's a 180 where the Americans go, these guys are really capable. Later on, they say, you know, JTF-2's task force was the most capable foreign soft in theater. Now, of course, they'd never say the most capable because their guys, of course, Americans are invested in everything. <laughs> right, but right. Uh, nonetheless, you know, they do recognize JTF-2 as the the best foreign uh, soft organization. An incredible compliment. I mean, those are very storied units you just mentioned there. And, and you, you detail this in, in your book, No Ordinary Men, but um, accolades like that, 
you know, the outset of the war for JTF2. I think it's, um, to some extent, a bit of national pride that I don't think a lot of people know about. Um, not to say that maybe those comments weren't made public at the time, but uh, it's a pretty big part of Canadian military history. Uh, and, and what an achievement for, a, at that time, sort of an untested uh, you know, special operations force. It's remarkable. Oh, it is. And it does, be, you know, operations ensuring was so important. You know, I call it the turning point for JTF2 because up until that point, it was very quiet. No one really knew about it or so. And there came a press, uh, what do you call that, a press scrum where Eggleton, the Minister of National Defense, Art Eggleton was there. And the press started beating up on him about, you know, why are we doing more to help our American colleagues in Afghanistan? You know, why are we not helping our brothers? You know, why are we not doing something? And he got frustrated at one of these. He goes, hey, look, we have commandos over there. And the room, I'm being literal, like sort of a little bit of literary license here, but yeah. you know, the room goes quiet and all of a sudden people are like, what? We have commandos? Right. You know, everyone's surprised. And then he never gets bothered again. And so he realizes like, oh my God, 48 guys in this task force and the press is off my case. The public is off my case. And so after that, he keeps, you know, we have a very sharp edge over there, you know, to keep playing on this idea. And he phones, you know, basically the government gives $129 million in in-year funding to JTF2. We want you to double your capacity, you know, and it, it took them, uh, you know, years to get that because they, they did the smart thing. They didn't say, okay, we'll just lower our standard and bring more people in or whatever. They actually maintain the standard. But because of that, it took, you know, I would argue up till about 2008, 2009 until they reached that, okay, we've doubled our capability, you know, with, with all sorts, not just people, but other capabilities and equipment and all that. So, uh, yeah. I, I, I want to unpack another comment you made just again with standing up at JTF2. Uh, this is the armed forces assuming, you know, the counterterrorism capability that, that previously the RCMP had, their, their CERT team, right, in the Dwyer Hill facility. And, you know, again, you know, reading your work, CERT was having some troubles of their own as, an, as a national task force, and the Airborne was having troubles of their own, and JTF kind of comes up or is created through the middle. Is there some truth to that? No, I'm not sure I, I buy into that, uh, Dan. How I would explain, I have to go back a bit. So, you know, I told you earlier about, you know, when we start talking about modern, more current day software. So it starts in the 60s and 70s with all yeah. the terrorism yeah. that's going on. And after the Munich thing in 1972, most countries start up special groups, special operation forces, you know, that are capable of doing counterterrorism. In Canada, so there's this, the, the National Security Committee is saying we need to have the same capability. There's guys like Bob Fowler who's sitting on that, who says if you're a sovereign nation and you can't deal with your own counter, a terrorist situation, if you have to call the Americans to come rescue some of our people, he said you're not a country. So they keep pushing for Canada to come up with this uh, a soft-like organization. And the Treasury Board keeps pushing back, nope, too expensive, too expensive, too expensive. And so you do have RCMP emergency response teams. And so for the 1980 uh, G7 conference in Ottawa, they actually start up the, uh, the HARP or the HARP unit, uh, and they're trained by the British SAS. And it's, it's a force of about 25 door kickers, uh, some snipers or whatever. They, they stand them up for the 
the G7. And as soon as the G7 is over, it's like, okay, we want to make these guys permanent. And it's like Treasury Board wants to get, no, no, too expensive, can't do it. By 1985, you have the Air India bombing, you have the Toronto subway uh, poisoning, you know, threatened the Armenian terrorist group threatens to poison the, the subway. They they attack the you know the Turkish uh, military attaché. They attack the Turkish embassy. You have the Lytton bombing in Toronto, and so the, now the government's like, hey, we need to do something. We can't put this off any longer. And so now they, the Solicitor General sits down the RCP commissioner and the CDS and says, okay, the Solicitor General wants the CT task to go to the military. Uh, and the RCMP commissioner doesn't want it because he says, look, at CT work is not police work. You know, our whole thing is minimum violence. You know, you try to de-escalate it. You, you don't want to pull your weapon or whatever. But CT work is you're going in ready to basically take out the bad guys. And so he says, that goes against our culture. I don't think we want it. CDS didn't want it either. Uh, at the time, the way he explained it to, and this is from a former lieutenant governor of Ontario who was in the room apparently, and he, this is what he passed on to me, is the CDS at the time said, I don't want, I don't want to take this on because I know it's going to happen. You know, I'll train these guys up. They'll do their two years. Then they're going to get out and they're going to become mercenaries or gangsters. And that'll be on me. So I don't want it. And so both commissioner and the CDS are fighting not to take on this new tasking. And uh, the cabinet basically says, no, it's going to the RCMP. So the RCMP pick up the cert. So individuals are promoted to sergeant right away. Uh, initially, they go, okay, so there's two assault troops. And they go, you know, one of the assault troops can be on regular police duties while the other one is on standby. And they just don't understand the time and effort it takes to be able to have qualified, you know, close quarter combat individuals who can go in and with precision drill someone without killing the hostages or so. And so that doesn't last for long. So they say, no, everybody has to train all the time. They never do any real operations. They're always on standby. Uh, they have to pay the national defense for all the helicopters you know whenever they need a helicopter whenever they need a hurt to fly them someplace they're paying out their pocket and so this is costing them a lot of money by 1992 uh we're running into the point where you know under former governments i won't get into individuals or party affiliations here <laughs> probably for the best but anyways yeah yeah exactly but anyways so what happens is we, we have the worst deficit in canadian history and now the government is just cutting back. And when you look at discretionary spending, it's really the military and maybe police to a degree, you know, the RCP or so, because you're not going to really take a lot of bite out of social programs. And so the D&D gets hit bad. Uh, you know, and also the wall has come down. Cold War is over. Everyone's saying, hey, we don't need militaries anymore because, you know, the war, the Cold War is over. The RCMP is in a financial crunch, and they're going, look, we have to pay our guys overtime. You know, we have to pay for helicopter. We can't afford this anymore. We don't want it. And now, as the Deputy Minister of National Defense, you have Bob Fowler, who was on that security committee, who all along said, we need CT work. Uh, you know, we need a CT organization. And so when he finds out that RCMP wants to get rid of the capability, and he sees what's going on, in, you know, with with everyone screaming for, hey, you know, P 
peace dividend. We don't need militaries anymore. Let's, you know, cut them back completely. He goes, this will be a good task to take on because it's something that will always need to be done. So he, he does have some foresight there. So he takes on the task. And, uh, you know, so 1992, boom, we have about nine months to, to start selecting, training and, and getting people ready to go. Uh, so, so that's the story. Uh, you know, it had nothing really to do with the Airborne Regiment. It really did. You know, I, I'm not aware of any internal problems with CERT other than it was a financial liability mm. for the RCMP. Mm. You know, and so that's where we get JTF2 coming out of that. I mean, <clears throat> your your retelling of of the ping pong for for jurisdiction or control, you know, is funny. If you fast forward 20 years, you know, to a 9/11 world, how there could be any. I mean, I guess you could say this was all, with all of this soft history, how there could be any doubt as to the need of the capacity and the need of the funding and the expertise. And yet, as, as, you, as you retell it in the mid-80s, Mounties, the, the, the CAF, no one really wants this, no one really needs this. And just, I mean, history is history, but how funny that reads today. Yeah, it, it does. But, you know, it's it's also funny when Hillier wanted to stand up CAMSOFCOM. Uh, I mean, the Air Force and the Army were completely fighting tooth and nail against it or so. Because, you know, it's it's not just people unable to see the security environment and what may or may not be needed down the road, you know, being able to anticipate and adapt to things or so. But it's also rice bowls. It's egos and it's rice bowls. I don't want to lose my soldiers to a soft organization. I don't want to lose my helicopters to a soft organization. And so rather than, I would argue, thinking of the national interest and, and you know, what's important for a military capability, uh, you know, they're thinking very appropriately about their own service, their own cores. I mean, in the Army in the 80s, and, you know, I saw it all the time the internal infighting that, you know, that's why it took us 20 years to get a freaking new raincoat because the army, the different corps could never get together to, to sort of say, this is what's best for the army. It was always what's best for my corps, what's best for my brigade or, or whatever it may be. And you get the same thing when you look at soft and the conventional side. So, uh, Softcom Hill, you're standing that up. What, what year is this? So in 2005, he starts his transformation. His experience, I'm not sure how much detail you want to get into this, these sideline things, but you know his experience, he was a commander in Bosnia, and he was always frustrated because of the Somalia crisis. Nobody in Ottawa wanted to make any decisions uh, on anything, and they didn't want the military to do any operations or anything where some, some other scandal could come up or so. So everything was no. So whenever the Europeans in, you know, in uh, I-4 I or S-4 wanted the Canadians to participate in something, they, you know, they go through the national chain of command. The chain of command would say, no, you can't do it. And so Hillier, as commander there, was embarrassed because the Europeans were calling Canada, you know, it's always CANBAT, Canada Battalion. So instead of CANBAT, it was CANT. Back. Nice. And nice. so he said, yeah, exactly. And in fact, it, the reason we got involved with uh, Enduring Freedom in 2001 was because when Europeans were setting up their first iteration of ISAF, Canada said, sure, we'll participate. They said, ah, you know what? No, thank you. Because they remembered us from Bosnia. And it was like, oh, why do we want you guys? You won't do anything. You know, so we went to Enduring Freedom instead. So Hillier sees some problems with it, or operationally with the, the, the military. And so he wants to create new commands. And so, you know, he creates, uh, you know, uh, Canada Expeditionary Force Command, Canada Command, the Logistics Command. 
and can SOCCOM uh, because he wants to bring all the capabilities together required to make sure that you know we have this robust special operations capability or so. And, and so, you know, he starts that in 2005 with his CDS transformation teams, and he realizes there's so much opposition to what he wants to do, the transformation, and especially the CanSoftCon piece of it, that he realizes he has to push really fast. So in April of 2005, he makes the announcement, and he says the headquarters will be stood, all the headquarters will be stood up 1 February 2006. And everyone's going like, holy shit, that's, you know, that's unreasonable. You know, it's less than a year and you want us to stand up brand new headquarters. Uh, and he says, yes, because he realized, you know, he was time limited. There was so much opposition. If he didn't get these headquarters stood up and running, you know, and getting the tweaks out before he left the CDS, it would all collapse. They would just shut it down as soon as he left or so. So that's why he presses this timetable. And one uh, one February 2006, we see all these headquarters standing up, including CanSoftCom. And to the uninitiated, what is a Special Operations Forces Command, at least in the Canadian conception of that? What, what does that well, mean? It's, it's the framework of how you're now going to do operations. So you have your different units. So when the CAMSOFCOM was stood up, JTF2, of course, was, you know, the, the central piece to that. And they were, you know, they were responsible in many ways for setting, helping set up the command because, you know, so you had them as your tier one soft force. And, you know, they, they set up a new organization, a new unit, CSOR, Canadian Special Operations Regiment, which was supposed to be that tier two force to assist JTF2 cordons, you know, different things such as that on, on operations. Then they cut over 427 Special Operation Air Squadron, so they had their own integral helicopter aviation support. And then they also took the JNBC company, uh, you know, and brought in, which is the the uh, the uh, Joint Nuclear uh, JNBC uh, Biological Chemical Defense Company. It's changed over to CJRU, Canadian Joint Incident Response Unit, and you know so. The command now has, and a headquarters to, to manage all of that, now has all of its integral capabilities to be able to launch all sorts of different missions, you know, utilizing the Special Operation Task Force framework, whereas, okay, what's the mission? Okay, we'll take some from this unit, some from that unit or so. So it's just bringing together under one commander, uh, you know, so that for that unity of command, so that you can don't have to go begging for resources, begging for the pieces you need. You have everything integrally to your organization so you could use it, tailor it up, you know, uh, to, to what you need for a certain mission, uh, you know, and it just makes it more effective, more efficient. Uh, and from the commander's perspective, he has unity of command so he can decide how he's going to deploy his forces, what he's going to use, how he's going to use it. So, so from 2006, Onwards, Canada now has, uh, I think, what you called a tier two band of um, special operation soldiers who uh, apply for selection to join this unit, as as opposed to maybe the earlier airborne model where you're a member of the Patricias or the RCR, and you're still attached to that unit, and you're seconded. Uh, that's probably the wrong word to the airborne. It's a different model now with CSOR. Is that is it? Do I have that right? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Same with CGIRU. They have their own what we call, uh, you know, classification and all this. And all the all the units are going to this soft specialization classification so that uh, because up until 
just recently, individuals still belong theoretically to their units. Now, when JTF2 first started up in 1992, the whole idea, much like the Airborne Regiment with LR, was that, hey, you're going to serve for two years. Uh, and then you'll go back to your unit and share right. those skills. Right. But, you know, very quickly that model broke down because, one, you know, by the time you're done selection and your, your uh, you know, qualification course, it's almost a year. Then, you know, it takes about a year in the stalls till you actually really are comfortable with what you're doing. So there's two years. And now, theoretically, you're supposed to go back. You know, so the first CEO said, look, could we expand it to three years? But even that by the wayside because the other issue was so you're a corporal in you know back in 1992 you're a corporal in one rcr you know what do you do all day you know, well you know maybe hopefully there's training late on if not you're waiting around the cq stores for dismissal at three o'clock or what's usually going to happen is okay clean weapons okay sweep out the drill hall uh let's go we're going to do a butt sweep you know like wow that's pretty exciting stuff eh you're a corporal in JTF too, you know, all of a sudden you could be a debt commander. You know, you're doing CQB, you're running your own training. You're, you know, you're given all sorts of responsibility because the whole idea of the unit was, look at, you know, no one's dead weight here. Everybody got to pull their weight. And I don't care if you're a corporal or a master corporal, you know, you're capable of running stuff, doing stuff. And so they, they have piles of responsibility you know and they're doing interesting exciting stuff every day who would want to go back and so if you they started trying to force guys back to the units they would just release and go to a police force to join an attack right. team there right. so right. very quickly it became you know we're keeping these guys forever and plus the gene pool just wasn't big enough to keep getting enough guys to to replace those that that were uh attrited. Just just back to the, the segue between JTF2 and RCMP, there seems to be a, a, a difference doctrinally in the sense that JTF2 has has domestic jurisdiction in the way that American counterparts, you mentioned Delta, for example, as I understand it, don't. That's correct, yeah. And I guess that's a conscious decision with how, with how the, the Canadian government has structured uh, CT and, and national security? Absolutely. But, you know, just to be on the clear side, too, is CareSoftCom just doesn't run out and do its own CT workers. So uh, it's the solicitor general or provinces, you know, for any military assistance, if anybody wants military assistance in Canada or so, you know, the solicitor general goes, you know, and, and goes to the Minister of National Defense. And they actually, you know, there's a CFAD that they have to go through to say to request the assistance of you know military equipment or whatever it may be or so and the same would work for jtf2 if there was a terrorist incident the police law enforcement agencies are the first to react and when they feel it's beyond their capability that's when they would then go through their chain of command the solicitor general to ask for assistance from the military side from the cds who would then task the uh the organization let's say ct jtf2 or cansofcom to deal with it so it's not as if we're running around doing domestic stuff uh, right. on our own. Um, we started this interview off talking a bit about, you know, sort of your pathway to formal education, and we talked a little bit about selection for the Airborne. Um, I, I appreciate that you, you probably didn't do a lot of, you know, training cadre-type work for, for uh, CanSoftCom, but can you speak at all to the, the, the type of person who serves in special operations in Canada now? I mean, are, are these, just speaking generally, very strong individuals? Are these very uh, book-educated individuals? I expect it's somewhere in between. 
Um, what, what's the prototype of, of a soft operator in Canada? Well, I, I would say, you know, the, the prototype, as you would say, of the soft operator. So is, you know, the basic thing is they are very capable. They're, they're very fit. They're very smart. And I'm not going to say book smart or they got degrees or whatever, but, you know, they're, they're, I would say their IQs are probably above average or so. Uh, you know, they're, they're very mature, reliable, self self-confident uh, individuals. These are the attributes that we actually look for. So, you know, they're, they're able to work independently or able to work within a team. They're very good with dealing with ambiguity and stress. They're decisive, you know, and they have a high level of perseverance, you know. So we're looking at individuals who are really driven, very motivated, very fit, you know, very capable in, in every sense. Because a lot of these guys, you know, we'll send them out on a mission or so. And there's small teams, sometimes, you know, just a handful of individuals or whatever. And they have to deal with the situation on the ground, you know. And it could be a sergeant, could be a master corporal, but they got to deal with the situation on the ground. And therefore, you have to trust them. Uh, and again, when we look at the soft organization that I talked about earlier about self-discipline and all that, these are individuals who, who we have to basically trust to do the right thing. You know, and then, we, you, well, you know, you look at uh, some of the issues in the, the states, you look at the airborne regiment where we started to lose focus on some of these individuals and allowing things to slip. If you start having individuals, especially in leadership positions who let things slip, you're going to run into issues like some of our, well, like the airborne regiment did or like some of our uh, allied nations have had recently as well. Certainly since 9-11, there's been a huge pop culture moment of, special operations sort of generally. And I know in, um, you know, in, in Thatcher's Britain with the Iran embassy and the SAS kicking in the windows, that made a bunch of newspapers. And that was maybe the Captain Phillips moment for the SAS in, in England, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but fast forwarding more today, I think there's a big awareness about commando type units and Navy SEALs and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I don't perceive the same sort of awareness in Canada of our units and our capabilities. And I, I would write that off as just kind of Canadianism of just being modest and and um, obviously being a lot smaller than our American allies. But are you able to comment at all on on the culture of SOF in Canada as, as not being uh, big self-promoters or maybe a conscious decision not to use JTFT as a military recruitment tool. It, it just seems so palpable compared to other allied armed forces who maybe wear their soft capabilities on their sleeve more than the Canadian armed forces does. Yeah, that, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, the SAS, I don't know how many times I've heard the SAS say, you know, like, oh, we don't, uh, we, we don't uh, want any publicity. We don't want anyone writing about us or so. I remember I was in England once with a bunch of other authors and one of the guys who wrote uh, an unofficial history of the SAS. And I was really impressed with the fact that he had all this data on the SAS. And I said, I said, wow. I said, how did you get access to all that stuff? And he looked at me like he had 17 heads. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, soft is so secretive. They don't want to let anything go. He goes, no, no, they, they, they gave everything to me. Uh, you know, so what they right. do yeah. is they actually, you know, under the table because they realize that publicity is, is gold. I mean, you want to maintain the mythology, you know. Uh, so 
So even though you know, organizations say they don't do it, they do to a degree. Uh, when I, except for Canada, and I think you're right, with us, there is this real aversion to letting anything out. I mean, I, it, it's sometimes it's, as a historian, sometimes it's frustrating because I'm sitting on so many great stories about what CanSoft has done. And I just would love to have it out there so people could read about, you know, what, the, you know, their special operators have done, you know, everywhere from Iraq to Afghanistan to, to everywhere else or so. But there, there's just this, no, we don't want to, we don't want to put it out there. We don't want to poke the other services in the eye. You know, it's a quiet professionalism. We don't want other nations soft to think that, you know, we're self-promoting or so. And so they do tend to mute it quite a bit. Uh, which, which I think is unfortunate, but it's it's the commander's decision. I mean, you know, so so that that's uh, that's fair. And uh, I mean, that was actually going to be kind of the last thing I wanted to talk to you about today is is your current role as as now a civilian and you're retired and a, an academic and an author, but also uh, a command historian. I understand, and uh, it strikes me as as really important work, but hard to do under various cones of of silence, so to speak. Yeah, no, and, and it is, it is. So I do a lot of other stuff too, other research and that on more uh, current issues that I try to help the commander. So, and I still maintain that, try to maintain, you know, writing up some of the history as I can or so. But, uh, you know, it's it's the, uh, again, it's it's important to do and I try to do as much as I can. Uh, but it's it's unfortunate that our culture right now is is one where we're just not, ready to share our stories because we're not sure, you know, whether there's more positives or more benefits to it. The other issue too, is to go back to your initial question too, is, you know, writing on military history, Canadian military history in general or so, maybe it's just my writing is shitty, I don't know, but I find that there just isn't much appetite for military history in Canada. There's there's a very small audience. You're writing for a very sliver, you know, of the Canadian audience or so, not like in the Britain and the States right. where these things go go nuts, people go nuts for the stuff uh, here in Canada. It's, we're just not a very uh, militaristic country. No, and it's, it, it's probably a bit of a chicken and the egg. If, if there was a better understanding of what Canada has done and, and can be doing, that may grow the appetite or whet the appetite for it. But you're right, people probably aren't looking on bookshelves for Afghan war stories involving Canadian Special Operations Unit, probably because they don't even know to look. And, and maybe that changes, right? As, as documents become unclassified and freedom of information requests become fulfilled in the decades ahead, you know, maybe these are stories that get to be told. Yeah, potentially. Uh, there's so many good stories, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, on that uh, sort of tasty teaser, uh, Bern, thank you very much for your, your time this morning and, and thank you for your service. I, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, I hope if anyone's listening and is interested in what we've talked about, I mean, you've got, what, a half dozen books published with Dundurn? I do, yes, yeah. And uh, I think anyone who can use Google can probably find dozens of other articles uh, written by you on, on all these topics. And Double Dagger also has my latest book. I, I'll throw in a, a, a picture. My, my latest book on Unleash the Dogs of War, which talk about the start of uh, special operation forces in Britain, and specifically SAS, LRDG, and uh, the commando raid on Hitler's headquarters in uh, North Africa in 1941. If you enjoyed the show, please pick up a copy 
of one of Colonel Horn's works. His most recent book, Unleash the Dogs of War, The Birth of Modern Special Forces in North Africa, was published by Double Dagger, a Canadian publisher focusing on military and security subject matter. Some of his other books are with Dundurn Press, including No Ordinary Men, which I read late last year and enjoyed very much. Also, if you like the show, be sure to give it a uh, positive review or a follow. That's it for today. Until next time, we're under reserve.